Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm KW Taylor. Today, we are going to talk about the Alanis Morissette musical Jagged Little Pill, the Netflix series You, and we watched the pilot episode of Cheers. So Carrie, I didn't even actually totally realize until you mentioned it a while ago that Jagged Little Pill had been adapted into a rock musical. Yeah, I was pretty excited when I found that out. I only found it out maybe a month ago. Alanis Morissette is one of my favorite artists. Her last album came out in 2012, I believe. It's called Havoc and Bright Lights. So it's been so long that every few months I kind of just check her website to be like, is there new music coming out? (laughs) And the last time I did that, I realized that there was a whole musical based on her Jagged Little Pill album, which is arguably her most recognizable, I think. And I asked my sister for the soundtrack for Christmas. So that was exciting. My parents were kind of like, oh, okay. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Interesting choice. With Broadway shows, because I don't get to go see them a lot, sometimes I just get the albums and it's a little bit hard to to figure out what the actual plot is. So I don't know a ton about the plot. You can read a little bit about it on Wikipedia, but basically it's about a family named the Healy's and there's a mother, a father, a son, and then a daughter who's adopted and most of the family is white. The daughter, Frankie, is black. I think that plays into Frankie's story. Uh, she feels like her heritage is being erased a little bit because her her mom wants this image of the perfect family. I asked for it because I love Alanis's music, but I think it's really interesting. In the same way, I think I find covers interesting because you get like a whole different perspective on the music, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly enough, Jagged Little Pill is not my, I'm not going to say it's not my favorite album, but it's definitely like 90s pop rock, angry. It's got like some real angry vibes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And her later music is is less like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of tend to like her later music a little bit better. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even know where I'm going with this because I, <laughs> I was telling you earlier, I don't, I studied music, you know, I played piano and took piano lessons and played the trumpet and stuff, but I didn't really retain any of the theory. So I can't, <laughs> I can't talk intelligently about the differences between her solo album and, and this as an ensemble Broadway show. Mm-hmm. But if you're into hearing music that you know you like, but played in a, in a little bit of a different way. I think you would be interested in this. Just some of the songs, they've got a lot more background vocals on them than she does in her regular albums. Mm-hmm. So I think that provides kind of a, a neat atmosphere to it. Mm-hmm. And they do use some music from her other albums, but most of it is not super recent. So I think they only use like one or two from her her latest album, which isn't super late. Yeah, but yeah i am having a lot of fun with it i've been listening to it a lot in the car and i wouldn't say you ought to know is my favorite song but it's a really fun car song oh yeah (laughs) yeah i would agree with that every version of that that i've heard i've yeah that's it's an anthem at this point yeah it's angry angry quasi i would say I i don't know if i would call it a feminist anthem but it's definitely a 
powerful woman telling somebody off anthem. Right, right. And I think, I mean, it's great because you can read it in a lot of different contexts. And in this context, it's sung by a character named Joe, who is queer in some way. And she and Frankie kind of have this thing. And, and then Frankie has this other flirtation with a male character named Phoenix. So Joe gets upset. And in, in, in that way, it's a little bit of a queer anthem. And when I sing it in the car, I'm very angry about <laughs> different things in my life. Yes. So it's kind of like an angry anthem about, you know, coming home from work or whatever. <laughs> So I think it's very adaptable in that way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I very much enjoy. So it's it's a great karaoke car ride home album mm-hmm. if you like that. If you if you like rock musicals, I think you'd like it. But yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with it. Cool. I want to ask you just randomly about the album. It's like the original album. Did you ever hear I think it was for the 10th anniversary of of Jagged Little Pill, she re-recorded the whole thing acoustically. Honestly, I just found that out when I was looking her up. It's beautiful. I remember listening to that when that came out. And I think it was initially like, I'm not sure, don't quote me on this, anybody, but I feel like it was originally a Starbucks exclusive, like you had to get it at Starbucks. But then later I found it on iTunes and stuff. And But I, when that was out, I listened to that a lot. And I really liked it even better than the original album. It's really beautiful. That's cool. I think you are correct about the Starbucks thing. I was doing a little bit of research before we hopped on here, and I didn't know that she had done an acoustic one, so I actually just grabbed the MP3 album. Oh, great. <laughs> so I'm probably going to listen to it in the car tomorrow. Cool. Enjoy. Let me know Let me know what you think of that. Thank you. I'm very excited. Well, this sounds really good. I, I have not actually been listening to her that much lately. I do like her a lot. I probably not as much as you. I don't have a lot of her newer albums, but I'll tell you what, I actually really, really like her brother, who's named Wade Emery Morissette. What? He is a musician also, and he makes yoga music, like new age. What? It's beautiful. I like will sometimes make a playlist of his stuff and like it's very soothing. It's almost not even, it's more music to meditate to, I guess. Okay. Also, I just found out that they're twins. They are. Yes. That is, that's great. That's cool. Yeah. So check him out too, but it's not the kind of music that you can rock out to. It is much more like put it on the background while you're cooking or writing or something or that you want to sit and relax. Some of it's a little more bouncy, but it's definitely not rock and roll at all. So neat. I will check it out. Thank you. You're welcome. Cool. I think the second season of You on Netflix came out recently, yeah. right? Yes. I just started season one, so I'm I'm very curious to hear what you think about it. Okay, I'll try to do this without getting too spoilery for either season, but this was a show that when the first season dropped, I think about a year ago, I was like, ooh, I started watching it and I was like, I don't know, this is really, it's a troubling storyline, and I'll get into what yeah. the storyline is, but but then I start, I kept going and I was like obsessed by about the middle of season one it's very compelling it is very compelling and then by the end of season one I was like what (laughs) I remember that last summer I was on vacation with my husband and with some friends of ours and and the wife and the other couple had just started watching it and I was like 
making her text me when she was flying home of like, you're going to watch it on the plane. I need to know when you watch the finale, it's going to, it's going to blow your mind and stuff. So it's very, yeah, it's crazy. And then um, the second season just dropped in, I think like a month ago. And I ended up devouring season two in like three days or something. I had a really bad almost flu. So I watched this in a bit of a state of like, cold medicine and like holiday haze or something. <laughs> so it took on like a fever dream quality, which is pretty accurate to the to the plot. So the show is called You, Y-O-U. And it's based on a novel by Caroline Kepnes, who has also served as a writer for the show. Um, she wrote this novel in 2014. And then the first season of the TV show came out in 2018. And it was originally on Lifetime. Season one was on Lifetime. And then hmm. season two is an original Netflix show. They okay. Lifetime actually canceled it because they're stupid because it's <laughs> everyone I know is is watching this thing and obsessing over it. So basically, it's about this guy named Joe Goldberg, who's played by Penn Badgley, who was Dan Humphrey on Gossip Girl. Dan Humphrey was a bit of a did you watch Gossip Girl? I watched the first season. Okay, Dan Humphrey was a little bit of a kind of loserish, weird, a little bit creepy character. Well, Joe, Joe Goldberg takes that up to like 11. He is crazy. Actually, this is funny. Penn Badgley on his Instagram just posted a little video where he's like, since you, my my Instagram followers have exploded and all I had to do is play this like horrible person. He was fake acting mad about it or something. It was kind of cute. <laughs> anyway, Joe Goldberg is a bookstore manager in New York City. And he falls in love with this woman named Guinevere Beck, but she goes by her last name of Beck. And she's a customer in the store. And she's also like a poetry MFA student. And basically, they they fall in love, but he clearly, you're kind of more in his point of view. And he is totally stalking her in the course of trying to start a relationship with her. And then even once they're in a relationship with her, he's still stalking her. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I take a little bit of issue with you saying they fall in love because it's so manipulative. Yes, it's manipulative. He, she thinks she's fallen in love with him. Yeah. But he, it's hard to say if he loves her. He's obsessed with her. Right. He does things that he thinks, quote unquote, protect her, but they're awful and scary and terrible. But you're in his POV. And so as an audience member... Like, I don't know whose side no. you're supposed to be on. I know, I know. No, are you kidding me? Well, what? Okay, so whose side are you on? Absolutely, Bex. What are you talking about? Okay, I have heard so many people say like, oh, yeah, he's a stalker and he's weird. And then he starts killing people. And like, but like, you could totally see it from his perspective. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the thing about this show, and I think that's why it's so compelling, is that it puts you in the position of being in his mindset. He even has a voiceover, so it is totally from his – I mean, I think there are some scenes or, or episodes that are from Beck's perspective mm-hmm. um, that scenes that he's not even in, but – Having a voiceover narration during his stalking, when you're hearing his inner justification for everything, the narrative forces you to be with him in a way that if you had a more traditional thing where she's clearly the hero and he's an evil guy trying to do all this bad stuff, that you would side with her no matter what. But they also show that he is nice to his neighbor who's being abused. Um, He 
is nice to his coworkers. He's protective of Beck. Sometimes he's nice to his coworkers. Sometimes he's nice to his coworkers. <laughs> and Beck is also even as sympathetic as you are to her. She's sometimes portrayed as being and I sympathize with her, believe me. I I related to her a little too much. But she also is shown as being kind of dumb about relationships. She she <gasps> she does Oh my god. Does unwise things like leave her curtains up in this very busy street uh, when with all her lights on. I mean, like you see and she's not necessarily You can't see my face right now, but my jaw is <laughs> hanging open. Well, let me let me get to some of the other points here. Like they they make it a point to make you question like did she do dumb things that allowed Joe to be more successful at stalking Are her? Are you mm. <laughs> I'm not blaming okay. her, but the fact that you're you're put in this position as a viewer to maybe understand the bad guy and to notice things that the heroine is doing that are allowing the bad guy to succeed. But but at the same time, mm-hmm. some of the things she does, she does because he's manipulated the situation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But that's the... Co- so it's like, I don't blame her because I too would trust this guy. But knowing what we know, you absolutely can't. It's Exactly. Thank you. So the reason I like this show, and I think that the reason the novel series was successful too, is that it is flipping the narrative in a way that totally makes the reader or viewer feel completely uncomfortable about their reaction to this circumstance. And so it's asking things of you that feel unnatural as a regular human being. I think, okay. So, yes, from my perspective, I really enjoy it. It's very compelling being in his head. Mm -hmm. But I'm also aware enough to be like, this is not okay. Like, the things that he's doing are not okay. But I've heard a lot of people defend him and justify it. And I I feel like Caroline Kepney's really overestimated our intelligence as a species <laughs> well okay here's the thing i agree with you way more than i make it sound like i am at okay. the moment because i remember watching dexter and having a very similar reaction to me if you ever did you see dexter no okay dexter is about a he's a police blood spatter analyst who's also a serial killer and his sister is a cop and she doesn't know he's a serial killer and they do the same thing that's being done here where you're in Dexter's head, he does a voiceover narration, and he justifies his murder sprees because he only kills bad people. And they kind of make the cop sister look a little bit dumb over the years for not figuring out that her brother is a serial killer. And yet she's not a bad cop. And I would constantly say, you know, if this was a more traditional narrative, Dexter would be painted as clearly the villain and Deborah, his sister, would be the hero. And that's exactly what you does too. But I think they do it a little bit in some ways better because Joe is not a serial killer. He is a stalker who kills when things get like when things kind of get away from him. He like kills people in order to tidy up his stalking, basically. Yes. Yeah. I was trying to explain it to someone the other day. And they were like, oh, he's a serial killer. And I was like, no, no, not technically, but he has killed multiple. (laughs) He's killed multiple people, but he doesn't. I think he would not be described as a serial killer because he doesn't actually take any clear pleasure from the murders. Dexter actually really enjoyed killing people. He tortured them. It was creepy. And 
Joe is is a killer of opportunity, and he doesn't often see a way out of some of his predicaments because he's gone so far in the stalking realm, and he's committing so many crimes in service of stalking that when people find out how what he's doing, he kind of feels like he has to kill them. So I would not call that it's t- it's technically serial killing, but it's not from the same motivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, after we watched Mindhunter, we should know what it takes to be a serial killer, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not psychologically fitting the profile. So, <laughs> but I think the reason people say they sympathize with him is partly what goes on in season two. Season two is based on the sequel novel called Hidden Bodies. And Joe goes to Los Angeles in that book. And that season is a lot funnier in some ways. And he doesn't start doing the creepy things as early in the season. So you get, a, you're kind of lulled into this, oh, he's fine now, everything's fine. But no, it does not last. So um, I don't want to say too much more without spoiling our listeners or you too much. But um, I think that might be why. And I do think that there is a certain... I'm not going to, I don't know how I feel about him, but I think people just think Penn Badgley is kind of weirdly cute. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. Same with Dexter. The guy who played Dexter was kind of handsome. So it's clever to cast someone who can be both creepy and attractive. And that makes it worse as the viewer because you're even more like, it's the Ted Bundy effect. It's like, ugh, I know that you're awful, but you are handsome. So, And it helps that they're white. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. I think I saw a video of Penn Badgley, and he was kind of like, we will bend over backwards to justify terrible white men. Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, even though it's, you've got a protagonist who is committing crimes predominantly against women, Joe acts like he's a feminist. Oh, yeah. And he kind of hits that note several times in season one and season two and he doesn't like guys that are misogynists like he gets mad when guys treat women poorly and yet he's murdering them so it really asks a lot of you as as like ugh, a lot of mental gymnastics going on yeah yeah but it's really it's beautifully shot i want to say too season one really makes New York look beautiful. Season two really makes Los Angeles look beautiful. It's got good like background music. The actors are all really excellent. Yeah, it's just, it's very well done. But it is creepy as all get out. I agree. It's one of those things where like it's close enough to real life that it makes me question everything. Every time a guy's nice to me, I'm like, he's he's gonna murder me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, this is this is a quote that I still remember from probably 20 years ago on an old sitcom I used to watch called Caroline in the City. This is so long ago, but I still remember this. There was a girl on that show who was portrayed as being like a little bit of a, she would date a lot and she was kind of silly and not very smart. Uh, Leah Thompson was in it. Okay. Well, her best friend who was played by Amy Peets, uh, who's, I think her name was Annie, but somebody made fun of her for supposedly stalking a guy. And she goes, it was only stalking because he didn't go along with it. If he had just been into it, it would have been a beautiful relationship. And I think that <laughs> it's played for laughs, but I think that's Joe's mindset. Is he's like, look, if they finally fall in love with me, everything I do that's creepy is totally justified. Yeah. And the fact that he always blames 
the woman for the breakdown of the relationship. Like it's always her fault that that he did X to to them, like he broke up with them or murdered them or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Oh my goodness. It is a good show. I have a couple episodes left and I'll probably watch them soon. But yeah, it kind of makes me, I'm intrigued and I want to keep watching, but I also get really kind of apprehensive. Oh, binge it all in one fell swoop and then update us and let us know what you think of the end of season one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, on a much less creepy note, hopefully... We watched the pilot episode of Cheers recently, and you have never seen, have you never seen any episode of Cheers? Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Do we want to give a little background of the series quickly? Sure. You're good at that. Okay. This is available on both Netflix and Hulu right now. Um, And I think it's probably going to go to the Peacock streaming uh, service when that gets up and running because this was an NBC series. And it ran, it ran for 11 seasons, which is a lot, from 1982 to 1993. And it was created by Glenn Charles, Les Charles, and James Burroughs. And it starred Ted Danson, Shelley Long, Rhea Perman, George Wendt, Kelsey Grammer, Woody Harrelson, lots of people. It had kind of a, a long cast, an ensemble cast that changed a little bit over time. So, And its basic premise is it's just set in a bar in Boston and... We can kind of take it from there. Okay. So the first episode, it sets up a lot of the recurring characters. There's Sam, played by Ted Danson, who owns the bar. And then a couple of his employees and a couple of the regulars. And then also, is her name Diane? Diane. Mm-hmm. Played by Shelley Long. She's a grad student. Mm-hmm. And she and her lit professor come in on their way to Bermuda, I think, or the Bahamas somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere tropical. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbados. Barbados. Oh, was it Barbados? I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Somewhere with a B. Somewhere with a B, yeah. <laughs> and they're going to get married, mm-hmm. presumably. And he's like, no, I just have to go talk to my ex wife and get the ring back, which is like, oh, okay. Already, I was like, oh, this guy is <laughs> trouble. And he leaves and she's waiting for her at the bar. And the whole bar staff is kind of like, he's kind of a loser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did enjoy, though, that he's a lit professor, and they they had a couple literature jokes at the beginning. I thought it was pretty cute and funny. One of the jokes that I liked best, I wrote down, the professor's name is Sumner, and he says something like, I don't know if I could go to Barbados while I'm confused, and Diane says, Sumner, it's okay. The pilot knows the way. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think I, I enjoy stupid little jokes like that. <laughs> And we also have some other characters. Um, Coach is another bartender who knew Sam when he was an actual baseball coach and Sam was a baseball player. And Carla, played by Rhea Perlman, is the cocktail waitress. And she's she's very small and she's very angry. <laughs> I enjoyed her. She's funny. Yeah. <laughs> then you have Norm, played by George Wendt. And whenever he enters the bar, everyone shouts his name. That's my one Cheers reference that I sort of half understood. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then I don't, I actually can't remember if they had Cliff in the pilot or not. I actually went and watched several episodes after the the pilot. Yeah, he was in it. Okay, he's a mailman. He's not considered a regular until like the second season or so. So um, he was just kind of a background patron. um, And then he gets a little bit more fleshed out later. So Sumner 
he comes back once, right? And gives Diane an update and he's very confused. He doesn't know if he wants to still go. Mm-hmm. And then they, it seems like they're still going to go get married. And then finally, she calls the airline to change the reservation and Sumner and Mrs. Sloan have already boarded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. I was so mad. I mean, like, he's terrible and gross and not handsome, and I was still mad at him. And I even knew that was going to happen, and I was still mad, and it's just gross. And, like, she's his TA, so she's going to be left without a job, without her fiancé, and when he comes back, he's going to be remarried to his ex-wife, and so how awkward would – I don't know. I was just, like, so angry. <laughs> yeah. Those are good points. I know it's a comedy, and, and sometimes comedies – can kind of skirt the line of not being offensive, but um, like they don't want you to think about the consequences of things that happen in them. And yeah, the whole time she and Sumner were talking, I was just like, this is, this creeps me out. She's his TA. I just don't, I just didn't like the power dynamics there. Yeah. She was clearly so, much younger than him. It was just like, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm glad she got rid of him, but at the same time, Yeah all of the things that you said yeah and he's abandoning her there so anyway in the end of the episode sam offers her a job because she knows she can't go back to work for him and she weirdly enough was able to rattle off a drink order from memory when sam forgets what he's making for carla's table and Mm -hmm. diane just vaguely overheard it in the background and then she's able to just be like you're making this and this and this and she got it right and so he's like why don't you just be a waitress here so she is and she does yeah (laughs) She does. Even though it's kind of like a sports bar and she's clearly this very hoity-toity, smarty pants who doesn't like sports ball or stupid people and that's all she's going to be surrounded by now. So, Does that play into the rest of the episodes? Yeah, I think it's a a show where she's sort of your entry character in the beginning and the humor comes from the dichotomy between how she reacts to them, etc. And that she and Sam have this like little bantery relationship that's kind of sort of cute sort of problematic sort of not always ideal they're very bad for each other and she is portrayed as being a stick in the mud but when I used to watch this I related to her (laughs) too much so I would get mad and like ugh, but she's the one who's right because she's citing you know Emily Dickinson and they don't know what they're talking about and clearly clearly but she does kind of loosen up a little bit and relates to some of the other characters better but carla really dislikes her for a lot of reasons oh no yeah i don't like that well i mean it's not necessarily a thing of trying to pit the women against each other there's just not a lot of women in the show and they're very different people and Mm -hmm. i think carla also sort of loves sam kind of semi-secretly so she's gonna resent any woman who's present that might take his attention from her. So, Gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, hmm. what did you think of it overall? I thought it was pretty cute. I think I've said this in the past when we watched The Addams Family, but I don't love laugh tracks. Yes. But overall, it was pretty cute. I don't know if I would watch more. Mm-hmm. If I had more time, I think I would give it a few more episodes and see if I like the characters enough to keep going. Mm-hmm. But as of right now, it was... A pleasant way to pass the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I said I watched a few more, and I I used to really, really like this show, and I feel like maybe I have seen it too much, because it's one of those shows that, like, 
there's all those shows that like if you're in a hotel room and you're you have cable for once in a while I because I don't have cable and if there's a rerun of something comforting on some random local channel you're like okay I will watch this and so Cheers is one of those shows like that and I think it might be fine for that I don't know how much more I can really watch I just feel like I've seen a lot of them a lot of times Mm -hmm. and some of it feels a little stale. It's actually not a laugh track per se. It was always filmed before a live studio audience. So it's real people laughing. Oh, So it's like a play. And that's something that I might want to talk about in a future episode is that difference between like the Adams Family was not filmed before a studio audience. It was a laugh track. But shows with laugh tracks were meant to simulate shows that were filmed before a studio audience, which were meant to simulate plays And we've so gotten away from a theatrical sense of TV that sometimes that in and of itself can make something feel dated in a way that's not fun. Right. So that might be something to kind of discuss later. I don't know that that's what's making me not want to see more. It's just, I don't know. It's, It's just a little bland to me now, I guess. I understand that. Do any current shows have lap tracks? I'm curious. I don't know if it's filmed before a studio audience or has a laugh track, but I know that CBS sitcom Mom has people laughing and it looks more like a play. And I did watch a lot of that. I didn't actually finish the show or I think it's still on. But a couple of years ago, I went through because they were, had it on Hulu and I watched a bunch of it. And it's it's really cute. It's funny. I liked it a lot. It's a little edgier than some CBS sitcoms. But I also did find that that made it feel dated and weird. I know that the new... The reboot of One Day at a Time was filmed in front of a studio audience. Okay. And that also had a feel where it felt slower paced because of it. But I mean, when you go to the theater, like you and I have both seen some plays not too long ago. When you go to the theater, there are those holds for reaction from the audience and it doesn't feel artificial. But when you're viewing it not in person, that distance and then hearing people's reaction, it just it it does feel a little strange nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it in a theater because it's organic, but with TV, it's more like, I'm telling you that this is funny, (laughs) you know, versus just letting me think it's funny on my own. Right. Well, and let me ask this, and maybe this is taking it too far afield. I will listen to live episodes of other podcasts, and I enjoy that, but it's almost the same thing. I haven't listened to a live podcast, so I can't contribute to that. Okay. Okay. Well, what an example, they always they always record Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me live, um, mm-hmm. which is an NPR podcast. So maybe like listen to one episode of that and see if it bugs you that you're being forced to know okay. when to laugh. <laughs> Actually, I've listened to that in the car with my dad. Okay. And I don't love it. Okay. I can't say for certain if it was because there were people laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more like, like, I'm a very wordy person. So I cut myself down a lot in the podcast because I um and cough and stuff a lot. So maybe it's just the fact that it feels a little bit that like the pace is off. Mm, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know. I can't. I don't know. <laughs> Listeners, if you'd like us to do a live podcast that you want to attend a taping of, let us know. <laughs> we could probably make that happen. Yeah, how much should we charge for it? I don't know. I don't know. The McElroy brothers charge a lot for their live podcast. So I'm sure we could get the the same rate as the McElroy brothers. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> I did see Wait Wait live once and I can't remember how much I went with my dad and I don't know how much our tickets were, but it wasn't cheap. 
Well, okay. So one one problem with Cheers is that the format of it feels a little dated. But, you know, I think that one thing I will say in its defense is that they always tried to kind of keep some of their references pretty evergreen. So referencing classic literature, referencing sports that would still be true regardless of when you're watching it. The only thing that felt dated visually to me was people's clothing, but it also had this timeless quality to some of it. So from that standpoint, I think that some of that still holds up. So for sure. There are definitely shows from the early 2000s that I've watched that feel more dated than than this. And it was 82. Yeah, 82. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Maybe some of the fashions have come back around again. Everybody was dressed kind of normcore. I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't too bad. All right. Well, that was great. Um, next time, next time, we're going to talk about all kinds of other fun stuff including the new Netflix reality show, The Circle, which I'm super obsessed with already. <laughs> Season three of Runaways on Hulu. And we're going to talk about the musician Billie Eilish. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And if you want to email us, do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop.